And I'm Stacy. And you are listening to the Best Together podcast. Brought to you by Blind Early Services Tennessee. And made possible by contributions from listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Today we have a very special guest with us, Miss Heather Field. Hi, Heather. Hi. Hi, everyone. Heather is... Yes, we're really excited to have Heather here. She um, has been instrumental in my parenting life ever since my son Finn was born completely blind. I heard about Heather from some other parents here in Nashville who said, you need to go see Heather. She has all the wisdom (laughs) to grant you. And they were exactly right. Um, Heather was born and raised in Australia and lost her sight by the age of two. She has a master's degree in special education education and taught as a special education support resource teacher in Australia. She moved here to the U.S. in 1997 and she now runs a small private school and tutoring business out of her home. She also does uh, consulting, parent coaching, and advocacy services and she is just wonderful. So we're thrilled to have you and can't wait to dive in and kind of ask you some questions. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here today. It's lovely to be able to chat about one of my favorite subjects, which is the competence of blind children and their parents and everybody concerned. Yes, and I love how you put that, the competence. Yes, it's such an important word, what they can do, not what they can't. So, and we'll get into all of that. Um, But first, I thought we'd just ask you to share a little bit about your childhood, if you could tell us about growing up on a farm in Australia, your family life and upbringing, and maybe about your education there. Well, I'd I'd love to, and please do ask along the way if you have a a question, I'd love to answer that for you. Um, I was, uh, you know, born with a very practical mother, and I think pretty early on, she realized that um, she no longer had a child with vision. She had a child, she had the same child, but this child didn't access the world using vision anymore. And uh, I know that she was, um, you know, dealing with the the grief that is normal when we, any of us have a large life change, you know, whether it's with us or with our child. Uh, But, I think she heard, she told me at one stage that she heard a story. So, you know, it's the old someone said that someone said that there was a lady who lived locally who was blind and she had no trouble doing her sweeping because she used to feel with her feet where the dirt was Mm. or where her pile of dirt was and she would sweep her floor and sweep that all into a pile And although that seems quite a small thing, uh, it got my mum thinking and it got my mum on the idea of, okay, well, we'll expect the same things. We'll just get the information we need a different way. Love it. And I've heard um, 20 years ago, it used to be 80%. I've heard this quote that a typical child learns 90% of what they learn through the visual pathway and really that's uh, I don't know where that statistic has come from it's one of those things that gets tossed around and I'm sure if you chatted to the Montessori people that have all their multi-sensory cabinets and things organized for the younger children that they would be 
probably um, disputing that figure. So I think for parents, mm. it's so important to begin with the idea of here's the child I've got. Here are all the senses that are working so perfectly. Let me learn a new way of interpreting the world through these senses and bringing that to my child. Yes, I love that. I, I've heard that statistic a lot too. And in fact, I've used that statistic, but oh. I think the important part of it is up to 80 or 90% if they have a visual pathway that's working properly. Yes. And if they don't, that doesn't mean they don't still need that same amount of information. And it's just rethinking how to get it. It's one of the most helpful ways to think about, you know, uh, when people ask the question, what does a vision impairment mean? And I think the major thing that it means is that a child cannot acquire information at a distance that isn't auditory now for some children you know there's more auditory than others because some blind children and low vision children use echolocation and so they can they don't need to be having their body in touch with an object to be getting information but a lot of the time that's the biggest influence that I think a vision impairment has that you can't just get this information that's at a distance and so that's a helpful way for parents to begin to think all this information that's at a distance I will need to close that distance and enable my child to get this information in another way yeah and your mother figured that out quickly which I love Yes, well, I have quite a few memories of when I was um, small and, um, you know, my, my mother hadn't really heard that she couldn't expect regular things of me. And so I, I had siblings and so she thought, well, the simplest thing for me to do is expect normal things of my child and when we bump into a roadblock, we'll we'll see if we can adjust to it then. So I have a very vivid memory of, of being, I suppose I was about three and someone had given us a lovely little pair of white shoes that had a, a little strap over the top with a buckle. And by the time I was three, my mum had a, another baby that was 14 months younger than me and she had a newborn. And so she really didn't have, we were running, she was running a small crop farm at the time when dad went out to work. So she really didn't have time to be sitting there sort of coaching me on how to put the shoes on. And I, of course, knew how to put my shoes on. And then I remember saying, I don't know how to do up the buckle. They won't stay on. And she said, well, just find the strap and poke it through the hole. And she must have been doing some jock job or other at the time you know <laughs> and then she said now pull the strap and I'm like well the strap won't stay and she's like now feel for the little hole and uh, I'm like why can't she keep touching there you go and so she was just coaching me while she was 
going about it, doing whatever. And finally, I put the first one on. I remember pulling it through the, the strap and putting it in. And then I remember she was saying, well, come on now, you can do that one. You Now try and do your other one. And so she got coached and she said, I've got the strap. And she's like, okay, keep going. And I remember doing, doing that and being so proud of myself. And years and years later, when I was working as a resource teacher in regular schools, I can remember going over to the kindergarten classrooms where these children were five and they're going, oh, I need help, I need help, I can't put my sandals on and they had buckles and sandals and all the teachers were going, oh, wait a minute and the teacher had, all right, I'll help you in a minute. I thought, you mean mother, I was only three and you had me. <laughs> Pulling up my own shoes but you know it was that was just the way she thought about it I love it and, and I love the story you tell of her I remember you telling me this when I first met you and it really stuck in my head that you know she had you and your siblings outside peeling potatoes and she just handed you a peeler as sharp as it was and said get get going Heather you can do it too well what yes what happened was she used to peel potatoes just using a knife and she taught my two big sisters to peel potatoes using a knife and you know I think I was about nine and in the world of mother and family the time had come when I must learn to peel potatoes <laughs> and so she knew that I might um, try and talk the others into it or what I was like and I, you know, we had five brothers and two sisters. And, you know, so we, when we were having uh, fries for dinner, uh, she knew we'd need a big pile. And so one afternoon, she was about, oh, I don't know, four o'clock. She gave me lots of time and she said, now it's time you learnt to peel potatoes. And I don't know how to peel potatoes using a potato peeler. And to this day, she never did learn. She said, but I've bought one for you. And she gave it to me. She said, now go out and fill up the bucket, the green bucket with, a, uh, with potatoes and take this pot. She gave me a pot. She said, fill it up with water so you can wash them, wash the dirt off and don't come back until you've peeled them all. Oh and she just goodness. set me off. And I sat there and I went through, I cried and I wailed. And I mumbled and I muttered. I'm sure I said a few bad words just so she couldn't hear them. And I, you know, I just had a try. And by the time that bucket of potatoes was finished, it probably took me over an hour. But I had learnt because she didn't know how to teach me. And she didn't know anyone that she could get to teach me. But she knew that it was possible and that this was something that I would need to develop a tolerance for. I would need to learn to solve problems. So she wasn't really just teaching me to peel potatoes. She was teaching me, look, it's a pretty tough world out there and you as a blind child are going to have things that people don't know how to teach you to do and it's up to you to solve it now at any time I could have walked in and said mum do you think this will work or how do I do this and she would have been happy to help me but I sat there and because I'd had a history of a mum who you know said come on you can do it 
uh, yet mm-hmm. I, I was able to do it. And I remember when she took me for my interview before I went, I was enrolled at the State School for the Blind, they went down a list of things. And as I said, you know, she was she was a busy mum with all that washing. And of course, there were no um, disposable diapers in those days. So all those little ones had their diapers to wash and the school clothes for the older ones. And so she said, well, can she dress herself? And she says, oh, yes, she helps a younger brother get dressed, you know. And so it was just, you know, very normal. And and I can remember, I would think I was about five. No, I would have been younger, four. And we had a, a special, you know how you have the lovely little plates for the little children and they have a, a nice side on them. And I was learning to eat up my porridge and I didn't want to eat my porridge and it was a lovely little plate and it had all the Peter Rabbit people on the bottom. And so instead of standing there going, come on, eat your, now kick another spoon for, or giving up and making me, she would say, oh dear, Mrs. Rabbit's under there and, and, and all the babies and the little one pushing the wheelbarrow and nobody can see the lovely sunshine because they're all covered up in porridge. Why don't you try and help get that porridge off them? Oh, those poor baby rabbits are crying. And so I'd be spooning my porridge in and I'd say, mum, can you see anyone yet? And over there from the sink over yonder where she was doing dishes, she'd say, oh yes, I can see the baby rabbit pushing the wheelbarrow but I can't see his little brother keep eating and so she would work with me telling the story and giving me the information that I couldn't see but it could be quite easily given me in another way and so I was motivated to get into that habit of learning to eat and feed myself and get the job done and that that was very typical of my mum that she would think of another way to do the same thing and so many times in my life you know people have said oh you can't do that and it just requires and this is not just a me story this is blind people in general and you know low vision people and it's about what's another way you can do it and there are lots of people teaching uh, blind people teaching and it's funny over the years it's it's been oh, I think the first teacher was years and years and years ago 50 years or something and the same questions come up all the time that people like well I don't think a blind person could teach in a regular classroom how would you work with children that can see and of course it's all just a matter of choosing which thing needs to be done and finding a way to do it and yeah. because you model to your blind child that you just expect them to do it, then they begin to expect they can do it as well. And then they can solve the problem. And so when I was given a problem, you know, as a child, right, you, you're, you need to tie your hair back now. You're going to be going to high school. You need to tie your hair back. I'd never really tried to grow my hair. I didn't know anything about it. So off I went to my big sister. And said, well, can you show me how to tie my hair back, please? Now, she didn't come to me and say, all right, now it's it's hair back tying time. You know, (laughs) I've put a time aside to teach you. (laughs) She taught me, you've got a problem. How will you solve it? And that's an invaluable skill. 
I love that. I love the point. Oh, I'm sorry, Stacey. Sorry, Allison. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I love hearing about your early life and how your mom, you know, incorporated really just into, you know, your daily routine and her daily routine, um, you know, these basically lessons, but, um, you know, that gave you confidence and skill and independence, you know, ultimately I feel, you know, we're all working towards independence for our children. Um, and that, you know, that, that can start early and in the home and, you know, we don't have to wait till they go to school or, um, you know, have those pre-planned lessons, you know, it's just a part of everyday living. Well, an example of that, you know, and, and I do see this with, as I teach children who can see when and are working in my homeschool tutorial groups and so forth. And, you know, I'll say, all right, we'll get your shoes on and they'll run down the stairs and one of my four-year-olds might will, will say, I can't find my shoes. And I'll say, thank you for that information. I'm sad to hear it. And that's all the reaction they get from me. <laughs> and of course they are used to someone going oh oh well let me come and help you but you see they're not asking for help and that that's not a self-advocacy skill that's just giving someone a piece of information mm. and when they say can you help me find my shoes I would will come down and say well let's have a think where do you think they might be let's have a look around so what my helping them find their shoes amounts to is me coaching a four-year-old and then we'll we might have a chat about well next time it might be a good idea to pop them in there carefully and not just throw them because we see they bounced away didn't they and they weren't in the shoe bench so i i think that parents can benefit so much from having in their mind this is a child who has different learning needs so they need to learn differently but that word learn is there they must learn and if regular children dress themselves then we need to find the way that the blind child can dress herself and if Absolutely. he feeds himself then we must find a way and different children you know this is the other problem we read in books and articles don't we by for the blind child should well you know I've been teaching I, I'm on the other sweet side of 50 I've been teaching for quite a while now and you know there's no such thing as the child for an, an example would be the average child learns to read at age six that means there's a lot of children who will learn to read before they're six there's a bunch of children who learn to read after they're six because the average is just in the middle so to be talking about you know the blind child will be behind or the blind child will be delayed it's very deceptive and it's not helpful because children will learn to do what they prefer to do the way they prefer to do it now that doesn't mean we can let little Tommy learn to feed himself by throwing his yogurt everywhere but he does need to learn to feed himself and we need to find the way to encourage him to do that and not expect delays and not expect 
advances, just expect this is this child and we're working with him to move along this pathway and we're finding different ways to do it as we go. I love that. Did you have, um, I know, <clears throat> excuse me, I know your education growing up, you went to both public school and a school for the blind at some point. Um, did you have teachers there that really encouraged that independence as well? What was your experience like in school? I was very fortunate because I went to the School for the Blind uh, the first year it had been established. And at that stage, uh, they, they didn't have teachers who were uh, trained in blindness education. And this is not to say anything against teachers who are trained. All I'm saying is uh, I was fortunate in the sense that these teachers, many of them were told, well, you can teach at the School for the Blind or we've got a good... Uh, teaching position going up um, in the far north of Australia, about a thousand miles from home where you're currently living. And so a lot of the teachers were like, oh, uh, I think I'll teach at the School for the Blind because <laughs> I don't want to be shipped out back. Um, so a lot of them didn't really know what to do. And so uh, they, they've fell back on the children and took a close look at the children and said, well, that one seems pretty good. We'll, we'll let them do that. That one seems like he needs a bit more help. I do remember a very interesting experience, though, and it's quite common for people to think that, and this comes to us courtesy of the medical model where doctors work so hard to measure small amounts of vision, and they, they used to think that the more vision a child had, automatically the more competent the child would be. Mm. And so when we would go for a, a trip somewhere, a field trip over to the shops or something to the store, they would say, right, you people who can't see, take hand and partner with someone who can see. Well, going to a school for the blind, quite a lot of the children uh, had albinism and I remember this particular day pairing up with a, a boy who had albinism well as soon as we walked out the door into the bright bright tropical Queensland midday sun this boy who had albinism basically almost could not see at all where he was going and so I quite confidently let him off and we just walked along in the line mm -hmm. and, and I let him and we did whatever and then I let him and back we came and when we went back into the, the door he could see better but you know that was just such a classic example where yes. more vision didn't equal more competence so I, I went to the school for the blind and I learned braille and um, they did not teach orientation and mobility skills to young children when I went through school and I do wish that I had had a white cane um, and some good lessons I, th I think I would have been safer felt safer but you know mm. I, I just ran around and, and made do uh, as it was we had a holiday home on an island and my parents would let me just we it's called we call it a jetty in Australia I assume it's a, a wharf or something where you go out into the water <laughs> right and the, and the ferry would pull up to the steps of the jetty and I was like, well, I don't need leading down the steps. So I would walk down the steps of the ferry and my brothers and sisters would jump over 
the ferry and one of my sisters would say come on it's not far put your foot out bit further bit further and so there was an entire audience all lined up in the jetty all these folks who could see with their absolute hearts and their mouths <laughs> and my parents resisting the public pressure to help me and the ferry driver standing there in astonishment going oh, oh and my sister going there you go and I put my foot out and I jump across and you know gradually the ferry driver learned well, she's okay she can do it and so the other passengers would go oh here's that little blind girl dick and he'd go she'll be right and so i would <laughs> jump onto the ferry and you know that's a classic example of people parents resisting the public pressure to help mm. your blind child and 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 also an example of using your siblings when children have siblings the siblings haven't read the books on how blind children will be delayed they just have a brother or sister that they expect to play with them and join them, especially, you know, when they enter those really important years from, you know, five to 12 or, you know, older. And so that's such a valuable resource. So I went to a regular mainstream high school. They were waiting for an overflow high school to be built. And I think there were 42 children in my year eight class and there were 14 year eight classes. So it was a huge school. There were 17,000, I apologize. There were 1,700 children at that high school mm -hmm. uh, when I went there. And there was a resource room uh, that had your braille books and your braille writers and that for you. In those days we learned typing we didn't have computers in the schools, so I learned uh, to type. And um, so I went through a regular high school. And then when I got to college, I was bound and determined that I was going to teachers college. And I was going to teach children with learning difficulties, special ed children. And you first had to do two years of regular ed um, as a teacher. And then the third year, they would let you uh, specialise. And so I wrote a letter to the, the dean because I suspected trouble was on the horizon. And I said, I'm a blind um, student and I would uh, like to apply to uh, go to college. And I received a very terse letter back saying, we do not have the facilities or the resources. Start again. We do not have the facilities or the resources to cater for people like you. So wow. we are not, we would not accept your application. Mm. So don't bother applying. So I thought, well, I'll do it a different way. And I found out more details. And so I went to a, a regular university where I uh, did a forms of communications degree, it was called. And so we looked at film and television and radio and creative writing. And we studied all the ways that people communicated using the images and films and the images on television. And as you can see, and as you can hear, that was quite a challenging experience for me and the university staff, but it was absolutely priceless because they just assigned other students to work with me or I asked other students to work with me. And of course, there were no um, special disability services back mm -hmm. in those days. <clears throat> so 
I had used those valuable self-advocacy skill, self skills and <clears throat> was able to get people to help me and work with that. Mm. And then when I graduated with my, my bachelor's degree, I thought, well, what I need to do is go and visit the college. So I'll go and visit the dean and not allow him the opportunity to just reject me with a letter. <clears throat> Unbeknownst to me, the dean had changed in those years and I went to visit the college dean and he said, excuse me for asking. He said, but I think I remember you. He said, did you go to the state school for the blind? And I said, yes. He said, I remember when I was a school inspector, I went to visit a grade one class and a precocious little girl who looked a lot like you, but much smaller, disobeyed her teacher, got out of her chair <laughs> and came over and said, hello, are you a visitor? My name's Heather. What's your name? Why are you here visiting today? <laughs> and sure enough, this was the man who, and I said, oh, yes, you know, I do vaguely remember that. I got into a lot of trouble after you left. I was told I was a very bold and naughty little girl. <laughs> and he said, well, if you've got this far, far be it from me to put anything in your way. And he said, we'd be delighted to have you and any other blind students come to our college. Oh, how wonderful. So it was wow. just a marvellous opportunity. I think God was there pulling the strings. So I went to Teachers College and I was able to do my um, special ed uh, course there. <clears throat> and when I graduated from there, I thought, well, that worked pretty well for me the first time round. I think I'll go and visit the director of education because I'm sure if I just send my form in, he's going to go, what's this blind teacher wanting to work with our children that can see that have special needs that's that's not going to work so I went to visit him and I said now I know that you're going to have questions about how a, a teacher would teach if she couldn't see and the children can so I'm here to answer them please ask me because I'd like to apply for a job with your education department and I'd like to be employed and so he asked things like well what would you do if one of the children was poking their tongue out at you and pulling rude faces and you didn't know? And I said, well, if the opportunity occurred that a child was not busy enough, that I hadn't given them enough work to be doing, that they had time to waste, that they were poking out their tongue, I said, I would probably be told by the other children that he was being rude and I would deal with the fact that he was being rude. I said, much the same as a teacher who was looking at the blackboard and writing on the blackboard wouldn't know that a child behind them was pulling rude faces. <laughs> and so we were able to just talk that sort of thing through. And he had those sort of questions. And so then I was able to, I was offered a job at a wonderful uh, special education unit attached to a school. So I would work with my uh, children with learning differences in the mornings and then in the afternoons they would go back into their regular classes and I would go with them and act as a resource person and I ended up my children behaved so well and worked so hard that I would swap some of the 
uh, my children would go over to the regular classroom and I would swap and take on some of their slow readers and teach them to read because I loved teaching those children with learning differences so much. And then I got a transfer to a special education preschool because I wanted some um, opportunity to do that. And they weren't real pleased to have a teacher that couldn't see at their special education preschool, but we worked, we worked it out and worked it through. And then I uh, applied to do my master's in special education and moved off down to the big smoke in Australia, down to Sydney. And, <laughs> and then I uh, lived there. And of course, you know, for a lot of this time, I wasn't, uh, you know, living on campus. I was uh, sharing with other people um, in share accommodation and that sort of thing that the university provides and all that, you know, you can just imagine asking someone to share accommodation with a blind person who can't cook their meals or clean their room or do their share of the, the housework. And so it all went right back to the old mum with the peeling potatoes and the sweeping the floor that she had prepared me for my time at, at college and independent living by the things that she insisted on then. You know, simple things like labelling, sticking braille on your containers and writing your own shopping list and getting a friend to go with you to go shopping. Just the, the basic things that people don't think of when someone's four and having a tantrum because they don't want to put their own shoes on or find their own t-shirt but they're really crucial did your mother or any of your siblings learn braille you know my mum learnt braille she was she always felt guilty that she didn't she didn't think that eight children and a small crop farm were enough to keep her from to have a bit of an excuse for not learning braille um, <laughs> I was quite fine with it but uh, she did learn braille but you know I, I, I was one of those children who came home on day four weeping because I couldn't read and I hadn't learned to read yet and I'd been to school for four days um, and so I, I learned you know to read braille very as quickly as they dished it up to me I learned to read it and I and the, the maelstrom of childhood memories I remember being that someone coming and giving me a reading test when I was about six I was in year two when I was six at the end of year two and I think they reported I had a reading age of nine and a half at year six wow. now when I was six now who who knows what they used what test they used how they <laughs> tested me what they did but I, I just know that I was very independent braille reader and, and writer and so mum didn't sort of see the need so she used to write me letters when I was away from home as a you know off at college and that but there it was always fun to get a, a letter from mum because it was there'd be letters upside down and back to front and round the wrong way and you know it was just fine it was lovely to get a letter I knew what she meant <laughs> Heather back to something you mentioned um you talked about um you know teaching reading you know giving reading assistance to children that were behind and I, I assume you're talking about sighted children yes so you also learned print in addition to braille yes when I was eight a friend of the family gave us a lovely toy it was a, a flat board with sides on it and it had two rows along the top that were like um 
tall enough to fit letters in and it had print letters in it and it had you know AAA and a couple of B's and CC and some D's and so I just learnt my print letters by saying all right I need A first and there'd be a stray brother or sister around to say yes that's A and they were lowercase letters and um, to this day I, I think children should learn lowercase first as, as a special ed teacher because if you think about it people think capitals are simpler but actually you don't learn to read with capitals you don't read the dog is here in capitals you read it in lowercase so and I just learned to um, say all right all these letters I'm looking for I'm looking for the b's and this is what they look like and so I enjoyed sitting there and being like my siblings and being able to do the print letters and put them all in. And when I, by the time I was done playing with that toy, I knew my print letters. So when I teach children to read, I uh, use what's called a controlled vocabulary reading scheme so that the vocabulary is introduced in a controlled way. And I have uh, my flashcards have Braille on them so that the children, I know what is written on print and uh, I have the early readers um, on a note taker in it's been transcribed you know someone scanned it in so that I can read along on my braille note taker to see what the child is actually reading in their print book and when we do when we're learning our letters we have lots of fun we'll have a big magnetic board and instead of boring old pictures and once again remember all children learn better with multi, multi, I'll start again. All children learn better with multi, multi-sensory input. Goodness. <laughs> All children learn best with multi-sensory input. And so we have, uh, and I think Alison may have seen this, but we have, if we're going to do the letter A, we pull out a, a wooden flat picture of an apple and we pull out a little abacus and we put it on the magnetic board and we have a toy astronaut and we have a toy acrobat and we just put all these things onto the magnetic board and everyone gets to enjoy them so that uh, when I'm saying what does this start with I'm actually showing the child an object so although people think it might be you know hard to, to do when you actually think through it it's a matter of having a way to make sure you know what the print says and this is where braille has been so crucial and it's one of the lamentable uh, problems in today's education of blind and low vision children people often have their minds still focusing on well as long as my child can read print then they're in the printed world and I'm not going to call them blind and uh, you know we can call them seeing but really there are many situations where uh, low vision children are using print and it's it's not optimal for them it's a very very useful tool but the other tool braille is a tool that will use a completely intact sense. The sense of touch is not 
giving them any problems. It doesn't matter if the lighting changes, if the weather changes, if the child is having a headache from leaning over too much, if the paper's the wrong colour, if the print's the wrong size, if the lighting's wrong in the room, if the magnification device isn't working today. All these issues that can interfere with a child learning to read print. And a child can, with good braille education can get a speed of several hundred words per minute. The, the, this low incidence disability of vision loss means that the research is still very lacking in this area. But at worst for a child that has low vision, braille is a tool in the toolbox. And at best, if they learn it along with print, then if the print gets too small and they've hit fourth or fifth grade or they have unexpected loss of more vision, they have this braille to fall back on. And it's a marvellous, I encourage parents to, to think about it as a tool in the toolbox and not a badge of blindness. Yes. I, what you're yes. saying, Heather, rings so true to me because um, I hope you'll get the opportunity to meet Nathaniel in person uh, before long. He's he's four and a half. Well, he's almost five, but um, he has optic nerve atrophy with, um, we believe, some at least some light perception in one eye, um, but possibly cortical vision impairment accompanying that. Um, so it's, it's true. Like his, his vision changes at different times, you know, sometimes he'll see something and, you know, I think how, how did he locate that? And then other times he'll, he'll trip over something. And I think the opposite, you know, how did he not notice that? But it's just, there's so many factors that um, play into what he, he can notice at different times. What so often parents are struggling with is the awful false perceptions of blindness and low vision and, and vision loss that are floating around in the world that really don't have much basis in, in reality. I remember, you know, talking to lots of different people, doing my own little informal surveys. And I've asked lots of people, when did you first, that you remember, think about or hear about blindness and many many people have said to me it's funny you should ask that it's quite a vivid memory that I have and they say when I was in preschool or when I was quite young in a church Sunday school uh, that you know the idea of blindness came up you know sometimes they teach Helen Keller or sometimes they do blindfolds or sometimes they do you know the blind man in the bible or whatever and they, they say, look, this is what it's like to be blind. And they turn off the lights or they whack on a blindfold and they say, see, see, see if you can find a chair and stand the children up and, you know, walk about. Well, we know that's nothing. That has no reality in blindness. That's taking a completely seeing child going, one, two, three, now you can't see. Now act like a blind child. But they don't have any of those alternative skills and techniques that low vision and blind children develop from the moment they start interacting with the world. So it maximizes people's false views of blindness. And, you know, people go, oh my goodness, I just can't even imagine. I, I couldn't even do up my shirt. I, I just can't imagine what it would like to be blind. Well, that's true. 
you can't imagine it. You have to, to try some experiments over time and meet some blind people. But what it isn't like, it isn't like flicking out the lights and saying, right, now cook your dinner in the dark. It's not like that <laughs> for, and to, to a sighted person. You know, I've had and I've often have had people over the years, it's very funny, say to me things like, well, I know you seem happy, but don't you wish that you were able to see your mother's face? Oh, and my goodness. It just makes you chuckle. I'm like, no, my dear, I have such marvelous memories of my mum and my mum's hands and her lovely voice. And, you know, you have visions of your mum's face as she got older and older. But I have a vision of my mum that's just love and firmness and delight to me. And so, no, you don't, Ugh. just like you don't miss being able to speak Tibetan or being able to go in the Mariana Trench, don't you long that you'd gone to the bottom of the Mariana <laughs> Trench in a submarine? <laughs> no, I don't think you miss that. And nor do I. I love that. Yes, I heard someone recently say she had grown up completely blind that to her, it's, it was like wishing you were a superhero that could fly. It's like, okay, yeah, that sounds like something cool and different, but I never sit around thinking about it or wishing, <laughs> oh my gosh, I just so wish I could fly. You know, no, it's, it's not, nothing it's not, it's not limiting. See, if right. you're someone that thinks of alternative techniques, then most of the time, you can find a way to do what you want. And of course, the classic answer that people give me is, oh, yes, but you can't drive. Well, mm -hmm. I'd like to point out two things. The first thing is, what's one of the first things, what, one of the first people that rich people hire? A chauffeur. <laughs> a driver. <laughs> to drive them about as they relax in the back seat. And what are we spending billions and billions of dollars on researching? driverless cars yes yes <laughs> because people don't <laughs> want to drive they drive out of necessity so you know it's 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 the wrong way to be thinking about blindness blindness yes, is is, is a problem uh, just like many other things are a problem very 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 tall people find flying in airplanes very uncomfortable because in that situation, their tallness is a disadvantage. And that's mm. the way to think about it as a characteristic that we need to find ways to work with. So as we're getting kind of towards the end, I wanted to ask if you'd share kind of your best tips for parents, how to, you know, if they're struggling with accepting their child's diagnosis or they're just struggling with how to help their child progress and you know they're maybe they have other children who are sighted and they're new to parenting a child with a vision loss what what would you recommend I would encourage you to sit down in a quiet spot and begin to think of a new way of thinking about your child usually parents who are, are dealing with a diagnosis are right off the back end of speaking to doctors about all the lack and mm. all the brokenness and all the absence of things that a child has. And I would encourage them to sit down. My mum's name was Doris. And to sit down and do a Doris 
and say, right, here are all the things that we do have. Let's forget about all the things we don't have because we don't have them. So they're not going to be of use to us. Let's take stock of what we do have. And let me start on an expedition with my child to find out what they're like as a little person, what they enjoy. And let's see where we can go with what we do have. And I encourage parents to think about the things that their children do have in terms of a reliability of access model. In other words, you say, well, let's look at the senses that my child has. Let's think about what will be a most reliable sense for this child to be getting access to their world. Well, with children who are blind or have low vision, one really reliable sense is their sense of touch and another completely reliable sense is their sense of hearing. For some children, it may be their sense of touch is first and their sense of hearing is not so reliable. They may have a hearing loss and, and circumstances and the environment will influence that. So think about what is the most reliable. So we might have sense of touch, sense of hearing, and then if there's some vision, that might be third on the list. So let's now, uh, if you know the child has good proprioception, that's the sense of your joints tell you, uh, is my hand moving? And you know, you don't put your hand up and say, oh, I don't know where my hand is, I better look. Yes, I can see my hand. Okay, I know my hand is up. Your body tells you that your hand is up or down. So, you know, your sense of proprioception, your sense of balance, that sort of thing. And, and think of your child in terms of what they have and the reliability of interaction and go from there because then you're going to be able to say, this is the world that I know my child has. How can I bring the world to them to begin with? Um, and present it to them. Now, one tip that I have for parents, it's very hard. There's a very famous person that's written a lot on children with uh, multiple disabilities or multiple differences, I prefer to say, named Lily Nielsen, L-I-L-L-I. -L -L -I. Mm. And she was a sighted sister of, I think, six siblings that couldn't see. And she knows that grabbing a child's hand and moving it to where you want it when you want it. She talks about what a terrible idea that is. And for parents to just think about this, let's go briefly back to the normal child. When you want your child, or the child with all their senses intact, when you want your child to look at something, how often do you go, Sally, look at this. <laughs> you would never do that you would know no no I'm I'm telling you I'm putting my hand under your chin and pushing your head up you look up at the sky when I tell you now look down I want you to look at what I'm showing you right. people don't do that but it's very common to be grabbing blind children and moving their hands where people want them shoving them onto the things that they want them to touch when they want them to touch. And part of what that's interfering with is the child's sense of exploration 
and curiosity. And it's also interrupting the child's looking. Child is looking with their hands. And if they're looking at something, they may not be finished. They may have discovered something about this object that you weren't aware of. And that's interrupting it. So I would encourage parents firstly to think of their child in the accessing reliability, what they do have model. I would be encouraging them not to be grabbing hands and then I would and, and shoving them where they want to. A third one is I would be encouraging parents to use words in a playful and engaging way and to be using sounds in an engaging way. For example, I have a very cute little fairy wren model here. And so instead of saying to the child, look, look at this. Here's a model of a little bird here. Here, come here and look at, I'd be going, I've got something that's making a little noise here. It's made of plastic. And I think if we could hear it, it might be going, chippity chip, 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 chip. Mm -hmm. Would you like to have a look and see what this might be? Why don't I jump him over here? Jump. Why don't I jump him over here for you to have a look at? And when you jump that little bird, it's making a sound where it is. And a curious child who's had his curiosity peaked will reach his hand out and have a look at the little bird. And then he's interested and he's engaged. And once again, remember what you do with a child that's looking, you say, look at this. And you hold something up to attract their vision. You don't get their head and shove their face to look at it or shove it so close to their head that it bangs it, that gets makes them look at it. So that's an example of use your words in an engaging and conversational way to encourage the child. And then my final tip would be think in that way of engaging those other senses to engage, not to be entertained. So I am not a fan of the toys that everyone likes to buy that just have press buttons and they and folks just say, oh, you know, my little Cindy, she just loves music. So I just put a musical toy on her lap and she just makes all the music noise. Oh, and, and I'm, how old is Cindy now? Well, she's two. Is she climbing and walking? Well, not well. She just likes to sit on her mat and play her musical toys. Well, that's an example of a little one who hasn't been engaged with the world. So I don't do a lot of toys that press buttons and make noises. I prefer to make the environment around the child make noises and encourage the child to come and find out what it might be. I love someone, that. These are such good tips for teachers too. I know yes. I asked you for parent tips, but these really apply to teachers of children who are blind or low vision too. Yes, and, and I think that it's it's a, a challenge for many teachers of children who are, are blind and low vision because uh, the pressure is on. Schools don't really want to hire a Braille teacher and have one teacher for one child that's at their mainstream school. But, you know, it, they, and they think it's much harder for a classroom teacher to deal with a child who is reading this weird dotty uh, language that they, they think is another language, but it's a dotty code. Uh, and so it's tempting for teachers to be pushing print. And many teachers haven't 
you know, I've often been to speak to groups of teachers and stuff over the years, and many teachers that are coming out to work with children who are blind and vision impaired have never met more than one or two if they have met any blind adults. And many of them have just met the children who were blind that they met at the classes where they did their prac. And so the important thing for parents of young children and teachers of young children to know is with the baby who can see, that baby typically leads the dance. So if you have a baby in arms and you step out the door and it looks around and it's maybe four or five months old and it sees a dog, it'll go ah, ah, and will gesture at the dog and mum will follow that baby's gaze and go, oh yes, that's a dog. He's a big dog, isn't he? He's all fluffy. Can you see his big nose? Where's your nose? And the baby led that dance of words and discussion from the mum. Mm. It's very likely when you step out the door with the blind or low vision baby that the dog might woof, but mum is much less likely to go, oh, I hear something going ruff, ruff. Can you hear that? That's a big dog. Let's go and see if we can find a dog. And you don't need to run off and touch the dog that you've seen running down the street. But in your mind, you think to yourself, I'm, I need to, I've opened that conversation on dog. Let's see if next time we visit my friend, you know, um, Loretta, if I could get her to let my little one sit near the dog and touch its furry leg or whatever it might be. So the mum or the dad or the teacher is the one that needs to be aware that the baby that can't see will not lead the dance because he won't indicate to you visually where he wants to dance or where she wants to dance. They may have tuned into these sounds, but you're going to have to tune into them as well to, to go with your baby. But in that discussion that we had about bringing the world to your child and, you know, many veteran teachers We'll chat to parents about this stuff, teachers of blind and vision impaired children, they'll say, you will need to take your child and show them what a little tree looks like. Because going to the trunk of a big tree that you can hardly get your arms around and saying, this is a tree, isn't showing your child a tree. Because if they can't see all the way up to the top or reach all the way up to the top and they're not climbing trees yet, there's no real concept of a tree. Mm. And touching a tree trunk so the challenge is how do I bring that distance information to the child in an accessible way and how do I tune into that world so that I know what my little one is attending to and you know I've got lots of ideas about adapting toys and adapting simple making simple things out of stuff that's around the home that helps with that that engaging the child because many parents and, and also teachers think gosh I've got to buy all these expensive toys and this expensive equipment from the American Printing House for the Blind or whatever it is mm. uh, because I need all this special stuff for my blind or low vision child and you know that really isn't the case. I think growing up, I had one much beloved toy that was given to me by a kind man who used to make toys for children that uh, had that were blind. And I did love it, but it was a, a matching block tray. 
the blocks matched in rows of four. So I soon grew out of it, but I, I, I loved it. But you know, I, we, you know, there's all sorts of things that people can do. Yeah, well, you were kind enough to curate a list of great toys last time I came to visit, Miss Heather. Um, oh, there's many we went more. Through all, <laughs> I know, there was a small curated list, but um, we create, we turned it into a wish list for best, but I think it's also a great place to point people to, um, to look for themselves if they're teachers or parents. Um, there's some really great things on there and it's linked from our site, but. Yes, and hopefully you'll be able to um, find them online. That's where I found them. I just knew yes, what I was looking for. Yes, I think I for. found most of them, yes. Well yes. done, of course, Yeah, but some of them you had, you know, they were do-it-yourself. So I think for the crafty moms out there, there's some other great options too, but. Well, this has been so good. Stacy. do you have any other questions? Or Ms. Heather, do you have anything else you wanna share with us before we wrap it up? I would just encourage parents, at the moment, if you have a young child who is blind or vision impaired, go on the hunt to find out about adults that have made their way and, and made the journey and you know college students there's lots of stuff this is the best time ever um, you know in the history of uh, blind and, and vision impaired people because uh, all this access technology is available and also it's available to parents to go find out what's going on out there and get yourself some hope because all mm. the, the medical people and the other people give you lots of here's all the brokenness stories and the can't stories and the won't stories get yourself some hope by finding out the already done stories mm. and, and find out about blind and, and vision impaired people who are out there doing it or have done it and do feel confident to reach out and chat to them because most people who've made the journey love to share the, the the stories of competence and ability and alternative techniques rather than the brokenness and the don'ts and the can'ts i love that so much that, yes. thank you yes. thank you well it's been a okay. pleasure thank you for having yes. me and no, letting me chatter our... on. <laughs> oh my gosh it was wonderful i think we could definitely do a part two <laughs> we could just keep it going i love it so much yeah, so thank, thank you for the, the beautiful list. It really is wonderful. And yes. yes, it sounds like you have more. So yes. we'll have to touch on that sometime too. Let's get together yes. and see more. Yes, yes. Right. Okay, wonderful. well, we'll let you go. Have a great weekend, thank you. Heather. Thank you okay, so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Do you know a family or provider in need of resources to support a child with low vision or blindness? Do you know someone with lived experience or professional expertise related to blindness who might be willing to share their story? If so, please reach out to us at blindearlyservices.org. Thank you for listening to the Best Together podcast and for supporting our mission. And please stay in touch. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Blind Early Services. Until next time.